0: Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast. On today's episode, my conversation with Eamon Coyne. Eamon is a combat veteran, a coach, and a community leader. On today's episode, we covered many critical areas in public health, including veterans' mental health, community building, and how to use nutrition and fitness to support physical and mental health. Please enjoy my conversation with Eamon Coyne. Eamon, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks.
0: Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. So you and I met many years ago because I heard about this cool new thing, CrossFit. And I was living in Ithaca, New York, and I think I Googled Ithaca CrossFit. And a few things came up, and up came a gym that was just a few blocks from my house, and I wandered over. And there you were. So talk to me a little bit about your background, how you ended up in upstate New York, and what led you to want to open your first CrossFit gym.
1: Sure. Uh, My background is um, pretty diverse. (laughs) Um, There's a running joke that uh, there's not a job that I haven't done, and that's probably very true. Um, I ended up in, in, uh, upstate New York. Uh, I served in the military from 2004 to 2008, U S Navy. Um, and after I got out of the military, I met my wife, um, in Pennsylvania. She was, uh, she is a veterinarian. Um, she was doing some internships and residency, some, some postdoc follow-up work for her specialty. And she was, uh, a resident at Cornell uh, in the zoological medicine uh, and wildlife department. Um, so I ended up in Ithaca with her, finishing up my degree at Ithaca College. So uh, I did my undergrad and graduate years at uh, Ithaca College. Uh, during our graduate year, we, we, me and my business partner, uh, opened CrossFit Palace um, kind of on a whim.
0: Um, well, I just want to say really quick on this podcast, we love the winding path. I talk about that a lot. Um, many oh, of the a, people.
1: It's a winding path. That's for sure.
0: It's a winding path. And I I myself, the other day I was working with a client and um, she's a, a teenager and I was I said something like, oh, you know, also, yeah, like I used to be a chef if you ever want to learn to cook. And she was like, oh, wow. And I was like, also, I used to uh, be a CrossFit coach if you ever want to work out. She was like, oh. And I was like, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite story on things that I've done that are uh, kind of like uh, out of the normal realm is I, I drove a Zamboni for two years.
0: Oh my gosh! <laughs> I played hockey. I played hockey.
1: I played hockey growing up, so it was kind of a natural fit. It gave me free ice time, and I got to be at the rink all the time.
0: Oh, that's brilliant! So. That's brilliant. That's kind of like when I worked at Whole Foods for like six months to get a discount on supplements. You know, <laughs> you do what you got to do. You do what you yeah. got to do. Yeah. Um. So speaking of hockey, that kind of transitions me over to. Um, your own personal background with fitness and like mm-hmm. the role that it's always played in your life and then how CrossFit found you and became a bigger player.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, um, uh, growing up, I played, uh, mostly played baseball. Um, there was a, a big, uh, contingent of, uh, there was a, there was a like a very well attended league in my hometown, Um, And I played baseball for probably eight years um, until I was...
0: What position?
1: I was all over the place. I played... um, I was mostly infield. Uh, I was a catcher for a while. Uh, I was a pitcher. um, And then usually second base or third base. Nice. Yeah. Um, And then when I was in seventh grade... Uh, The local high school was starting a JV hockey team that they were opening up to the middle school, uh, middle schools in the area. And I ended up playing my first year of hockey uh, when I was about 13, 14. And it Um, stuck. It stuck. I I fell in love with hockey uh, very quickly. Um, I ended up playing all the way through even post-military service at Ithaca College, um for two years um and it's you know i i still play pickup hockey now it's even i'm living in tennessee and there's leagues down here so um yeah it's been hockey was kind of like my segue into like really being a part of a sport really being part of a team um i played uh prep school hockey in in high school uh for a year well for three years really um and yeah, that just kind of solidified my my love of the sport um in order to get better at the sport i had to I had to work out um that was really pushed when I was playing uh in Lake Placid uh for a year at national sports academy and um since then it's been it's just stuck um you know i Played a little bit of college after high school before I joined the military. Um, I was kind of a a wayward kid. Um, So uh, it gave me a little bit of um, stability in my life. And I ended up joining the military at 24. Um, And my first run in with CrossFit was on my first deployment on the USS Ronald Reagan. And I'm I had a friend who was like, hey, come down and meet us in the hangar deck um, at whatever time it was, uh, seven or eight in the morning, and do this workout with us. I did a workout, got completely destroyed. Um, and this was, I, I went to the, <laughs> I went to the, uh, the smoking area on the ship before the workout, smoked my cigarette, and then went over to the workout. That's and, exactly
0: uh, what I do before CrossFit workouts. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Always I had get no a quick cigarette was, in. Yeah,
1: it's like, yeah, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, and that was it. That that changed my whole trajectory of life, really. Wow. So,
0: wow. Okay, I have like four different things I want to ask you after that, but I'm going to start with. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, returning to academia? as an adult and after military service and how that changed your experience of being in school yeah, um, and sort of just changed how you did school in general.
1: Yeah. So um, before I got into the, before I joined the military, I finished up my associate's degree. So I had some credits under my belt. Um, and while I was in the military um, and deployed, I would, I would take classes uh, because they were, offered by different universities at no cost, which was great, so I was knocking credits out there. Um, But the online learning of when I was in the military as compared to being in a classroom again was uh, a really hard adjustment for me. Um, I was deployed to Afghanistan in 2007, 2008. um, And very promptly after I got back from Afghanistan, I separated from the military. I returned from Afghanistan in September and my separation date was in November. Um, so I was dealing with post-military, I was dealing with, um, some combat trauma, um, and getting back into a classroom with, uh, people who were seven years younger than me, six years younger than me, um, was difficult at first. Um, I started at Penn State University Um upon separation I started in January and I I was not a great student. Um and it wasn't because I didn't want to be, it was because I was dealing with all this other stuff that was kind of loaded on um just as a result of of getting out of the military and the experiences that I had while I was in the military. Um I didn't really find my way until I got to Ithaca College and I got on the hockey team there and um, I started creating, uh, some pretty good friendships. Um, one notably was Tim Paulson, um, who I own of Palace with in, in Ithaca. Um, and he and I just clicked and Tim is one of my best friends to this day. So, um, we're still running the business together. Uh, we're still really, really close. So, that's um, awesome.
0: And he's like a veritable CrossFit celebrity he, right now. He is I feel, a
1: veritable CrossFit celebrity.
0: It's very exciting. You know, I think um, my own personal, just a brief aside, my own personal CrossFit experience has been, like, touched by so many cool things because I feel like it's totally possible to do CrossFit for many, many years and never, like, end up in a gym where, like, an athlete goes to the games and becomes very competitive. So I feel very lucky that my, like, little – journey through CrossFit has involved so many heavy hitters like yourself and like Tim and a few of the other really cool people that I met like during my level one certification. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It's special. Um, Okay, so I also, as you know, went back to college as an adult. So I feel you on the being different in the classroom. But I want to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, obviously, you're returning from war and something very intense and something that demands your um attention and hyper alert state probably 24 hours a day and what was it like going from that to trying to just go back to being a student a person an American um you know a civilian
1: um it was a uh a hard left turn is what we'll call it um my combat experience was uh, pretty intense. Um, And I remember when I came back to the United States uh, after deployment, um, it was a surreal experience. Um, It's like you had this vision of what life in, in this country was beforehand. And then you go and have this this very intense year long experience and you come back and you're still the same a little bit as you were the year before, but life in the country has kind of moved forward. Um, and that was a hard, that was a hard, I remember I was in the airport, uh, literally on my way back from, um, Afghanistan. We had, uh, they kept us in Kuwait for two weeks to kind of like decompress and, uh, I'm flying through the Atlanta airport headed back to my duties st- or headed back home. Cause I was going home for, for leave for a little bit before I went back to my duty station in Washington. And there was a guy who was on a, on like, I remember those old jawbones, the old Bluetooth, like the first uh-huh. Bluetooth. Yeah. He was, he was on that. And he was like, just talking into it, not holding a phone or anything like that. And I thought he was talking to me and I was like, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, he's like pushing me away. He's like, go away, go away. And I'm like, okay. And then I figured out what was going on there. And that was like, whoa, like.
0: You're like an alien returning it, from Mars.
1: Things have moved forward. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the the return from combat and um, it took me I would say probably took me uh about four years of getting through some pretty self-destructive behavior um to, to kind of like shake out of it and, and realize that um the experience is a part of me but it's not my identity um when i got back i was suffering from a lot of mental health stuff uh, as i think Anybody who goes through the military, combat or not, experiences. Um, And, you know, the the VA's response, at least in the early days, was always just give them more pills. Uh, And there was a point where I was on 12 different medications to kind of, like, figure out, like, I was on on antidepressants, I was on anti-anxieties, I was on sleep medication, I was on this, I was on that. And it was like this regimen that I had to take every day. And I felt like a complete and total zombie. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a point probably about four years in, right around when we started the gym, that I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And uh, I, at the chagrin of my doctor, my therapist, my psychiatrist, uh, I just cold Turkey stopped everything. I was like, I'm not doing the same one. This isn't the life that I want to live. Um, and at that point, uh, that, that was when I started using fitness and nutrition and wellness as, um, as my method of recovery, uh, from, you know, combat trauma, childhood trauma, that whole gamut of things. Um, And, you know, periodically over the years, I've, I've gone back to some, some of those medications, but use them more as a triage versus a permanent fixture. So.
0: Well, that's amazing. And I do want to go into that a bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really incredible that you figured out how to not only get yourself off of all those medications, but also how to use fitness and nutrition as tools to support, stabilize your mental well-being, your physical well-being. I do want to ask, though, I'm not sure if this is a strange question, but When you're in the military, when you're deployed, when you're active duty, Mm -hmm. um, I have to imagine that your identity becomes something of uh, a person who is strong, capable, resilient, um, independent, like reliable and kind of taking care of everything, you know, solving problems. But then you come home and you have a doctor telling you that you need 12 medications every single day just to get by in normal life. And I'm curious how that sort of dramatic slide from on top of the world, Captain America, to you are a patient and you need 12 medicines daily just to get up and get out the door, um, how that narrative shift um, felt and how that um, impacted the way that you sort of saw yourself in the moment.
1: Yeah, I think... um... I I think there is a a narrative of um, combat trauma makes us broken humans um, in that you went through this really hard experience, and now we need to, like, try to put the pieces back together in some way, shape, or form to give you some kind of function of normal life. Um, And I think that a lot of veterans that are suffering from mental health illness right now they feed into that narrative only because they don't know anything else. Um, And it's like the narrative that's being told to them in the military, you know, your job is pretty well-defined and, you know, your job is your job and you're kind of told what the responsibilities are. And there's manuals and books on how to do things and regulations and things that you're supposed to follow. So this is like a, a feed into that regulation and narrative of, Oh, this is the, this is the roadmap. This is how we get you back to a normal member of society. Um, you know, forget all the experiences that you had. We're not going to talk about that stuff. Um, we're just going to medicate you out the ears and, and turn you into a zombie. Um, you know, it, it's, um, I mean, we saw this during COVID, right? I, I worked in, in senior, senior healthcare during COVID. And th- overnight, they went from this caring model of um, helping people appreciate and live out their, their quote unquote golden years uh, into an immediate medical model of testing and you know immediately making people feel like they're sick and they're going to die um versus um no we still need to care about people at their core it's just that we have this thing now that we need to pay attention to um and it's a it's um it's a different approach and i think the approach will give you the outcome one way or the other if that makes sense
0: yes and i actually love how you're tying in covid here and also tying in the concept that in an emergency and I think this is a function of human biology and physiology, in an emergency, we as people and as a society struggle to hold on to our compassion, our empathy, and our knowledge of our own humanity and the importance of staying with the humanity in others. So in the case of COVID, we lost our ability to think about our human needs and our sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, our soul's needs, our need to interact, our need to touch, our need to be cared for. And a lot of older people, as you're highlighting, because of the function of them being in nursing homes, were especially cruelly isolated um, because in a panic, we lost sight of what it means to be a human, what it means to have those human emotional needs. And I think we see it also in the space of politics um, and with current conflicts around the world that as soon as uh, violence and conflict arise, people want to pick a side, you know, go red versus blue, go, you know, this group versus that group. And we forget that within those groups are humans just like us who have human needs, who wake up, eat, sleep. Um, and need to be loved and touched and held and cared for. So, I think that what you're saying is so important in the space of healthcare and public health. That yes, the data is important. Yes, the epidemiology, the numbers, the trends—those are all very important. But knowing that within those trends there are humans, and you know, using obesity as an example, like it's one thing to say, "Wow, there's exploding rates of obesity. This is a crisis. We have to talk about it." Yes, but every single person struggling with their weight is struggling with it uniquely. And while there may be population level things that we can do to address it and things about our society that could be shifted to improve certain outcomes, we can't lose sight of the fact that every single human being has unique emotional, personal, physical needs. So I love that you tie that together because it's, it's so critical and it's so easy to lose when we zoom out to this population health conversation. You know, veterans health, pandemic health, any kind of big picture public health talk, I think, quickly runs the risk of losing its humanity if it does not slow down and take the time to elevate individual stories and to pay attention to them and, and what you can learn from them.
1: Yeah, there's definitely, um, I mean, I noticed this in the, the wellness industry, there's definitely like trend lines and things that we need to pay attention to. But um, as I say to clients that I work with um, through collective health and wellness, um, little plug there. Um, brief plug. Brief plug. Um, as I say to clients when I'm working with them, I, I'm not going to treat you like a robot. You're not a robot. Your needs, um, you know, the, 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 the needs of somebody who's struggling with their weight or mental health um, differ in, in need, not kind, right? Like everybody needs that connection, that caring, that um, that individual approach to whatever we're working on. Um, I, have a, I have a baseline model that I follow um, and it basically revolves around four pillars. Uh, first one being intentional movement, the second one being mindful nutrition, the third one being sleep quality and the last one being mental resilience or mental health. I like using resilience instead of health because resilience puts the power back in people's hands mm-hmm. versus mental health, which is what I was dealing with when I got out of the military, where it's like, take these 12 pills and you'll be better. Um, resilience breeds, um, like I said, it puts the power back in your hands and it, it, it gives you intentionality behind it uh, versus just Um, following some kind of playbook that has been created by five different doctors uh, who don't actually look at your chart and don't actually pay attention to how these medications or these treatments are going to interact. It's approaching wellness from a holistic model versus a um, a pillared model.
0: Right. I also love the word resilience because it highlights the need for flexibility in health. So As you were talking there, I was picturing scar tissue and I was thinking, you know, anytime you have a wound, whether it be from surgery, from battle, from any kind of an accident, ideally your body heals. And when it's healing, it produces scar tissue. But that's not the end, right? It's not like either you produce scar tissue or you don't. You have a lot of control over what kind of scar tissue is produced and the level of flexibility that that scar tissue will allow. So if you're massaging it, you're moisturizing it, you're working with it, you're moving intentionally through it, that scar tissue can become part of a flexible, resilient body. Or if you just let it heal and don't work on it, don't want to think about it, don't touch it, it can become extremely rigid and end up making you immobile. And I think that that applies to the emotional piece as well. So if you come back from something traumatic and you go, well, I had those traumas, and now uh, all I can do is like sit here and live with it, then for sure those traumas can kind of calcify and become something that really stands in the way of your mental health. But if you see your mental health as something that is flexible, stretchy, and can kind of withstand a rock-bottom day because you know that, okay, I've had rock-bottom days before, I know that I can be triggered by certain things or that I can just be run down and end up in a bad place. But I know that I've been through this, and I'm flexible, and I'm resilient, and I can get back up again, and I can be stretchy in my mental health and well-being. I think that that's just so critical, and it points back to the thing you said before about um, treating veterans with trauma who are coming home as kind of like broken and reframing it to say – Yes, you've been through something, but you're not broken. You're just, you know, needing to adapt to a whole new set of things. But you have those skills, you have that ability, and it's possible. And that's why I love, love the work that you do. Um, so can we talk a little bit about that? Can we talk a little bit about um, the work that you've been doing with fellow veterans uh, around mental health and fitness and this resiliency piece and community?
1: Yeah, so um, about three years ago, I got together with a group of 12 other. um, Some of them are still uh, active duty National Guard, um, and uh, the rest of us are veterans. I'd say it's probably about half and half. Um, And we met up in Lebanon, Pennsylvania uh, for a weekend of connection and um, fitness and trying to figure out how we can give back to the veteran community uh, in a way that is uh, meaningful and impactful, not only for the the people that are involved, but also for the communities that we serve. Um, uh, Serving as a... uh, In the military, serving as a police officer or firefighter serving as an EMT serving as a teacher serving as a, a, any of that um any of those opportunities that we have to to serve people um I feel like I'm saying serve a lot but um it's a good word it is good it's it's how I lead my life right um servant leadership is is uh incredibly important for the operation of a uh local national and global community um and servant leadership can mean a number of different things to a number of different people um I think one of my big things when I got out of the military is I didn't have a vision for what that opportunity looked like for me Um, and then I started coaching CrossFit and I was like oh here it is here is my ability to give back to the community in a powerful way provided that people are willing to undertake you can call it a hardship but undertake this this opportunity for them um so we got together um over the course of the Army Navy football game weekend and we spent time just talking about what we were doing individually and how we could kind of bring that together um to to help other veterans You know, I think, I think it was, yeah, it was Buddha who said one light can light a, or one candle can light a million other candles. And, um, we wanted to figure out how that opportunity we could bring that to our community. Um, and so last year was our first, uh, retreat where we invited, uh, each one of on the, the leadership staff, um, got to invite somebody. Who was a veteran or a first responder who may have been struggling with finding out what that servant leadership and identity for them looked like um we invited them and they came and we went through a basically an entire weekend called shoot move and communicate um or we talked about the importance of filling your own cup in order to um bring that to your local national state regional you know the community at large. Um, And it was a pretty impactful and successful weekend. We had a couple speakers come in. Uh, We spent some time on the range because that's something we're all familiar with. Um, We talked about um, movement and the importance of that as it relates to your mental health. Uh, We talked about nourishing your body appropriately uh, as that relates to your mental health. And as that relates to pretty much every aspect um, there's a reason why nutrition is at the base of the hierarchy of fitness and CrossFit. Um, because if you're not nourishing your body, um, appropriately, then you're probably going to be dealing with some other residual effects of that. Um, and we just had a really great opportunity to connect with each other. And, you know, these are some of the guys that I consider to be some of my best friends. Um, they're people that I call when I'm I'm having a hardship or I have a success. Um, they're people that I can lean into when I'm trying to like cultivate ideas and and bring things to light. Um, and these guys are all doing the same things. They're they're going out and serving their communities now. Um, you know, in order to to continue that servant leadership. Um, you know, we've had people go through. <clears throat> Across at level ones, we've had people go through uh, EMT school. Um, you know, we've had uh, there's a one particular guy that I'm thinking of that was struggling with his weight, and um, now he's you know lost a ton of weight, and he's a better father, he's a better husband, he's a better employee, he's a better member of his community. Um, one of our tenants is via be via an asset, not a liability. Um, and I, I find that, I mean, that's, that's a tenant of being in the military, right. Or being in, in public service in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, our, our LEOs that, that come to the retreat, that's something they live by every day. You don't want to, you don't want to be the liability on a call, right. You want to be the asset on a call. So, um,
0: Can I just ask a quick question about yeah, that? Yeah. Um, cause I love that, Phrase and that framework, and I also want to go back to shoot, move, and communicate because um, I love that as well. But how does that framework be an asset, not a liability? How does that allow for those days where you are vulnerable? You know, how do you approach that when you are the one that's having a hard day? When you do want to call the buddy and not to share a success, but to share like a rock bottom or a struggle? How do you approach that? How does your community approach that through that lens, like while maintaining that framework, but also allowing for those moments of vulnerability?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's just a part of the human condition, right? Uh, we can't be, the highs can't, can't be consistent. There's, there's going to be highs and lows, and that's just a function of, of life. Um, I think where you become a liability in that scenario is when you don't talk about it is when you you don't go to somebody and say, hey, I'm having a hard time right now, and I need some guidance. Uh, I'm not looking for you to solve my problems, but I'm looking for you to listen and and help me kind of like walk through this. Um, You know, I'm experiencing some personal hardship right now. Um, And, you know, the president of our organization, Steve Bart, um, he's one of the first people that I call. And it's not that I can't call any of the other guys. It's just that I have a connection with Steve and Steve doesn't provide any solution and that's okay. He, he just gives me an ear. Um, and sometimes he'll speak up and give his opinion on things. And, um, you know, I think having, um, male or female, it doesn't matter. You need somebody like that in your life who's just gonna kind of shut up and listen, right. Um, yeah. and Steve does that for me. I mean, I, I have a, a number of people that I can lean into for that, but, um, Steve is somebody that I call pretty often if I'm, you know, if I've got a success story or if I'm, if I'm going through a hardship,
0: I want to highlight what you just said, because I think it applies to so many communities on so many levels, this concept of when you are having a bad day, When you are run down, when you are at your wits' end, the way that you can be an asset in that moment is to talk about it and model the art of vulnerability, model talking about it um, instead of shutting down, withdrawing, um, detaching from your community. Because I'm thinking, you know, as a parent, for example, I don't always have all the answers. I can't always say, I know exactly what's going on in the world and how to solve it and the world's a safe place and don't worry, like I can fix it all. But on those days where it is too big and too difficult for me to fix, I think the best way that I can show up for my kids is by admitting that it's hard for me so that they know that it's safe for things to be hard for them too. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hearing that that is important within um, your framework That showing up anyway and admitting when it's hard is a critical part of that being an asset because as you show up and admit that you're not having your best day, you're making it safe for others to do the same and allowing for that gray area where we don't have to be our best every day. That's not what it's about. We're not going to wake up glowing and singing about rainbows and sunshines every single day, but we can still show up.
1: Yeah, we can show up and uh, along with, you know, reaching out and asking for, for help when you need it. Um, I think leaning into the, the habits that you create um, to kind of bring, like for me, um, you know, working out and fueling my body and getting adequate sleep are all things that, you know, I talked about that four pillar model that I had earlier. And say, like, my mental resilience is a little bit lacking right here. Well, if I can bring these, if I can supercharge these other pillars, like, it's naturally going to help me once those things are addressed, then I can address this glowing thing that's going on with my my mental health and um, the ability to ask for help and the ability to kind of like lean into uh, habits or your routine or whatever you want to call it. I think those things enable us to address, it it opens up space, right? It opens up brain space for us to be like, okay, now I can do some deep work on this thing that I have going on and really address it. And, you know, once again, doesn't mean that it's going to go away. doesn't mean that it's going to get better, but it'll help us identify how to live with that experience and, and create, you know, kind of like that scar tissue reference that you had earlier. Kind of create that scar tissue around it, and that, that we can then massage and and take care of uh, and care for. So yeah. I think I think that's vitally important.
0: I think also in in my experience um, of dealing with you know different types of stress, that if we know what the inputs are that are keeping us going, then on days or weeks or months that we have no control over one of those inputs. Mm-hmm. We can mindfully lean on the other inputs to keep us going. So like, um, you know, going back to school as a mom and having weeks where sleeping just wasn't going to be an option for me, even though I know sleep is so important to my health. There were some weeks that that was not one of the levers that I could pull. And so knowing that instead of saying, wow, I'm so exhausted, I'm just going to grab a donut and like get on with it. And then suddenly every pillar has fallen and I'm a puddle on the ground, knowing that on the weeks where I cannot, will not be able to pull the sleep lever, that it's all the more important that I go, okay, what am I doing for my movement? What Mm -hmm. am I doing for my nutrition? What am I doing for my mental health piece? Like, who am I talking to? How am I decompressing? Because once you know that those are the inputs, like those four pillars that you talked about, then when one of the pillars is like cracked or frankly completely fallen down, you can lean more heavily on the others. And I think that that is so important. Um, And it kind of points me back to this conversation around community because communities come in many shapes and sizes. You and I have talked about this offline. you can kind of zoom in to your community, which is maybe like your family, your closest friends, and then zoom out to a community, which depending on how you define it, might be the entire globe or at the very least your country or possibly you know your state. So um, thinking through all the different levels of community, I view you as kind of an expert in community health because you have worked within community type frameworks, sports teams, military groups. CrossFit gyms, um, CrossFit communities, and then this veterans community. So I would love to hear from you about the different pieces that are at play in community health, how to maintain the health of a community with resilience you know, and adaptability, and then maybe we can uh, play on those ideas and talk about how they could be learned from and grown into our larger communities state national global
1: yeah I think um, I think the the primary tenant of any community that you're looking to be a part of or build uh, is care um, and that's care for yourself care for other people um, I take a very stoic approach to this and that if if I'm not feeling that level of care, it's going to be hard for me to give it out. Um, I've developed patterns around that, that if I'm once again, struggling or dealing with something, um, I can still pour out, right? Maybe not the most healthy thing from a mental resilience standpoint, um, but, you know, it is a part of my job. So I kind of have to fake it till I make it some days. Um, But, you know, I think fostering that community and caring for that community and, and treating it like a, a little baby bird, maybe every once in a while to make sure that it, it has all the, the needs that are met. Um, you know, going back to that servant leadership, I think a lot of people who are in servant leader, leadership roles, um, their cup gets filled by giving to others. And I know that that's a fact for me. Um, if I'm not able to, to pour into other people Um, I'm going to have a hard time pouring into myself. So it's kind of this backwards approach to things. Um, During COVID, I stopped coaching a little bit. Um, And it's been on and off since then. But recently I started back into where I'm on a regular coaching schedule where I'm working with people and helping them achieve their goals and getting them to move and gives me opportunity to connect and talk with them. Um, And it's like a breath of fresh air again it's like everything has opened back up for me um <clears throat> you know and there's there's those lever pullers who are the people who are you know constantly giving and that's that's how they that's how they gathered their energy or emotional state um and then there's people who willingly and openly accept that and i think that is another part of the community Um, but care and connection, I think are the two most, it doesn't matter what level you're at. If you're at the, you you know, your neighborhood level, or if you're at the state level or national level or global level, I think those two things are vitally important. Um, the issue that comes with that though, is that then there's all these other players and factors that come into play that need to be considered as well. So.
0: Absolutely. Okay, this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, it came up for me while you were talking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I am someone who very much, I'm not like a, I don't know, I'm not like an anger person. I don't I don't anger quickly. I don't have a lot of like physical anger. I, I more go towards sadness and I definitely go towards like calm. And, um, you know, I hope for peace. I think we all do. I think we all want peace and calm, although obviously we struggle to find that. As humans, um, and I'm curious through your various experiences, including being deployed to Afghanistan and working with veteran communities at home, and and being a veteran, and even having your own personal ups and downs of, um, you know, emotional struggles. Where do you think peace starts? How can we all be working towards mm. peace? I know a small softball mm. question. Just a quick aside, <laughs> toss it in there. Like, where can we start with peace because right now I'm just seeing a lot of anger in the world obviously and it's fed to us and it's it's perpetuated by the social media cycles um, but I keep thinking like if we can't even be peaceful with our friends who we disagree with on a topic, how can we have hope for world peace so I'm curious about your perspective on that and and if you have thoughts on like where does peace, begin
1: the, the quick answer to that is um that peace begins with the individual um and being at peace with your experiences um your decisions your 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 life we have one opportunity here right i mean unless you believe in reincarnation then we have you know, endless opportunities.
0: And, endless
1: opportunities to come back as a ladybug or whatever um but i think peace is a um i think peace needs to be defined right and how do we define peace and what does that mean because once again we're not robots so peace is going to be defined you know how many people are on the planet it's going to be defined that many times right Right. it's going to mean something different for everybody yeah
0: um
1: and Depending on where they are in their life, is it an external piece or is it an internal piece, right? But I think that that the word "peace" um, is a is an internal. It's almost an internal conflict, right? Of how how do we define our own personal inner peace? Um, and I think that comes from. We have all these experiences that come at us every single day right it's um we can't escape that it's just you know things happen right and for me once again going back to those like stoic philosophies it comes down to a function of okay what do i have control of here right because there's a lot of things that we don't have control over but there's three very important things that we do have control over our thoughts our words and our actions And I think in my mind, um, those, as long as we have control over those three things and an understanding of how a situation would come at us and how we respond to that situation through those three things is how we're going to define our own inner peace. And once we've defined our own inner peace, then it becomes, okay, well, how can I, one, do I have the capacity to bring that out to the world and share that with people? And if i don't then it's just a continual cycle of me working on establishing what my inner peace looks like but if i do you know it's not (laughs) i'm not personally i'm not going to solve the world's issues right i'm i'm going to play a small role in the things that i have control over and the things that i'm considered to be an expert in which is also um questionable at times um but as long as I have control over my sphere of influence in that i can I know that I can lead that meaningful life of um, what my legacy is going to be, right um, And everybody has has a legacy, um, and legacy to me, is, you know. Providing opportunity for future generations to um, to potentially solve those "quote unquote" peace problems. Right. I'm not going to head over to uh, to the conflicts that are going on in the world right now with the you know uh, a weight rack and some good food and, and just think I'm going to solve the the problems that are going on over there, right?
0: I mean, it couldn't hurt. Hey.
1: I mean maybe that's maybe that's why they're angry. They don't have access There's to not good, enough squatting happening good, in the Middle East, right? Like good gym, yeah. <laughs> so. so
0: So pivoting from that, and it's it's all connected. Um we're bouncing around a little bit, but it really is all connected. And um something that I said from episode one of this is uh, you know, no skinny experts, right? By which I mean I think that to be an expert in a field, you have to have personal buy-in, personal skin in the game, the lived experience piece to really know what someone else working on that, struggling with it, or needing change in that area is dealing with. So for myself, that's you know health, nutrition, obesity, chronic illness. I have a lot of skin in the game there. And that informs the way that I do the work that I do in the world. And so for you, You've got a lot of skin in the game on this topic of, you know, mental health and overcoming challenges using fitness and nutrition and community building. So I really do think, you know, you joked like your expertise is questionable on days. But that is part of the expertise by my definition is having those days where – You have to tap into your own tools, right? Like I have days where I'm like, Marion, like, you know, you got to eat a piece of salmon right now. That's going to solve this. Mm -hmm. Even if like what my brain is saying is like, whatever, like grab a latte. Um, So it is, it's meaningful to realize that being an expert does not mean being perfect or necessarily like robotic modeling the perfect behavior. It's like knowing that the tools you have benefit you as well. And, and building out from there, both with peace and with other forms of um, improvement for the world. So I wanted to point back to the framework for your veterans group of move, shoot, and communicate. And one of the things that I think is really important in this world and in the public health space is to not be obsessed with binaries and sort of right or wrong And to allow for a messy middle ground, because as you just said before, like, you know, peace can be defined billions of ways, depending on who you ask. Um, So can health. So can uh, enjoyment of life. And so can personal responsibility. So um, when we try to make an issue black and white, I think we always fail. Like that's where we failed right away is by trying to make an issue black and white um, or red and blue, you know, choose your color scheme. So I want to talk to you a little bit about guns, the shoot piece in the Move, Shoot, and Communicate. Um, I think it's important that shoot is supported by moving and communicating, so I want to talk a bit more about that. Um, But in general, um, let's talk a little bit about being a responsible gun owner, maybe especially as a veteran who has weapons training. And... Your thoughts on kind of a more nuanced gray area, messy middle ground conversation around guns, as opposed to the kind of typical black and white, yes or no public health debate that's going on.
1: Um, You know, my relationship with firearms is um, it's a it's a tool. It's a. um, Obviously, it's a it's a tool of violence. Um, or protection, depending on how you look at it. Um, the the black and white approach or red and blue approach, I think, is probably the more uh, reasonable statement there. Uh, of you know, take all the guns away, or, or or you're not taking my guns, right? Like there's there's a lot, there is a lot more nuance there. Um, I'm a proponent for for um, responsible firearms ownership um, you know I I do want the ability to protect myself and my family considering where we are in the world uh, or where the world is right now um, and I think just like with fitness training um, there is a, a personal responsibility to that um, and it's not saying that everybody should have guns or everybody should not have guns it's saying if you decide to have a gun that you need to have uh the appropriate training as it goes along with that um and the appropriate training to me um is it it looks like getting a driver's license right and we talked about this yesterday on the pre-show um you know there's some teenagers that shouldn't have driver's licenses. And there's some older folks that also should not have driver's licenses, right? And there's a testing process that needs to happen. Um, I think that even the driver's license test needs to be changed. I think every five years when you have to renew your license or whatever whatever the cadence of that is, I think you should have to take a short written and driving test uh, in order to pass it um, in order to have the right to drive. Um, I think responsible firearm ownership is the same way. I think in order for us to have uh, appropriate regulation on gun ownership, um, there should be a testing process. There should be some classes that need to be, um, you need to take in order to get that initial license. And then it needs to have a system of checks and balances uh, throughout the course of however long you own those firearms um, in order to make sure that you still have the responsibility and right to have them. Um, you know, that's not a pro or anti second amendment conversation. That is a reasonable and not reasonable conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my, my bend on, on firearms ownership. I enjoy yeah. shooting. I went shooting yesterday. Um, and it's, you know, um, the only people that want to do harm are going to do harm. And as a military veteran, as a responsible once again questionable but responsible member of society um i am trained i am trained with firearms and you know i was talking to the guy i was shooting with yesterday who's a police officer here in knoxville where i live and you know the conversation was around the only the only person who's going to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun and i think there's a lot of um I think there's a lot of, uh, that, that's a charge statement, right. Uh, in that some people will completely disagree with it. And if we ban all guns, they're going to go away and, you know, it won't become a problem anymore. Um, so there is, there is nuance in there. It's not, um, I don't think it's as black and white as, as people are red and blue as people make it. Um, I think it's an easy argument to have. Um, but you, you know, it's, there's more personal responsibility that comes with that gun ownership, just as there's more personal responsibility to have an attempt at, at avoiding chronic disease, or there's more of a personal responsibility to your family and, you know, being a good parent. And what does that look like? And, you know, cause it's different for everybody. Um, the simple fact of the matter is, is that the, there are three hundred and thirty million gun owners in this in the country, right? Most of them are legal. Many of them are not. Um it's not it's not as simple as as setting a hard line in the sand and saying we're taking all the guns away, because that's not gonna happen. Um right. they tried that before, right? <laughs> uh and that didn't work out so well. Um so you know, I think it does come to down to personal responsibility and legislation on a system of checks and balances to make sure that people that do have guns are still able and uh, functional to have guns.
0: It's funny because it makes me think of the um, beautiful stone engraved quote, "Freedom is not free," and of course. That line means one thing in the context of, you know, our national freedom and military and loss of life and um, people giving everything and or a lot to um, maintain our national freedom. But when I think of it now, the context of this conversation uh, and of identities and responsibilities, I think what... It means to me, freedom is not free in this moment. Is that sort of with great power comes great responsibility? Like, if each of us wants a freedom or this identity, there is some buy in that we have to contribute in order to make it work, not just for ourselves, but you know, spanning out for our families, for our communities, for our society. So, if I want to be a gun owner. Then it's not enough to just say, well, freedom is freedom. Like, I should be free to own a gun no matter what. That's not really reasonable. How about if you want the freedom to own a gun, then you can, you know, be registered and trained and there can be checks and balances to do due diligence to make sure that you are a safe and effective gun owner. Same thing with being a parent. Like, you don't just get to call yourself. I mean, people do. um, But just saying I'm a parent, you know, what does that mean? Like, yeah, anyone can like have a kid. But what does it really mean to be a parent? Like when I say that I'm a mom, I don't just mean that uh, I have legal rights to three children or that even that I birthed three children, right? There's so much more that goes into that identity. So Um, like freedom isn't free like yeah I was free to become a mom but it cost me a lot (laughs) day in day out I have to put in so much effort to earn that identity and I think that maybe um, that personal responsibility and the earning of freedom piece is not talked about enough like that that messy middle ground where if you want something you might have to work for it not just to get it But to maintain it, the same is true um, in friendships, in marriages, in in communities, right? To have the respect of your peers, of your community. It does take daily, weekly effort. It takes a a contribution. It takes showing up. And so the freedom to belong to a supportive community is not free. It takes your personal effort and buy-in. So I just wanted to interject that, that I think that this conversation which briefly was about guns is really about everything meaningful right if you want to have something um that holds power that takes responsibility then there's a level of effort that each one of us needs to contribute to earn that responsibility day in day out whether it's someone saying mom i love you or someone saying hey you're you're someone so that's allowed to own a gun because you know we trust that you will handle it carefully and responsibly Yeah, with
1: the responsibility and care that's that's needed to handle that. I want to back up a little bit because you did touch on um, identity. And um, I think, I think that's part of this conversation, Uh, part of the wellness conversation, part of the gun ownership conversation, part of the American conversation is we're at a point right now where you know, once again, there's millions of people in this country. Um, what is our national identity? I think for a very long time, we had we knew what that was, right? And I think over the course of my lifetime, at least, that national identity has kind of lost its way a little bit. And what does it mean to be an American? And what does it mean to be a patriot versus being patriotic? Because they are two different things, as we talked about yesterday. Um, and you know, people are going to have these visions of like a patriot of like George Washington with like the sleeves ripped off his shirt, and he's like muscular, and he's got like assault rifles, and he's like, "Screw the British!" Right? But George it's,
0: Washington, oh, please. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, is it hot in here?
1: <laughs> but you know, um, to me, being patriotic is a responsibility, and being an American we're living in this country, there's a responsibility that comes along with that. And it's, it's not just the personal responsibility of what that means, but it's also the, the national responsibility. And, you know, we can, get, we can get super political here and really dig into the details of, of the politics and where we are as a country right now. Um, you know, for example, I don't think we've had a really good presidential candidate in a very long time. Um, and this is supposed to be the leader of the free world and then we look at you know the house and congress and and the decisions that they're making and what's their guiding principle and are they patriots or patriotic or are they you know are they just looking out for number one like i think it's a, a valid conversation to have especially as we come into this next election cycle right the countries it's we're not we're not everybody i've heard it a number of times you know the country's in a place that it's never been before that's not true Right. This this country is, again, it's it's super nuanced and um, I don't think I don't think throwing the baby out with the bathwater is the right idea. Um, I don't think we're too far off course of what it means to be an American. Um, But we definitely have to do some soul searching on individually and as a as a as a national community as to what exactly that means. Um, And I think it does come back once again. To care and to really care what it means to you individually to be a member of this this world and, or this country and the society and where we're living and how you can influence those decisions um I think it's a vitally important conversation it's probably for another time because it's a lot more detailed than we probably have time for here but
0: And then during hour five of the Marianne Flaxman (laughs) Network. (laughs) We're just
1: getting started at hour five.
0: (laughs) Woo! Crack those knuckles. Let's go, folks. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I definitely could spin out on this. I will say briefly, just to interject my own uh, weird experience, I am a registered member of the Daughters of the American Revolution Mm -hmm. because my eighth great-grandfather was a Revolutionary War general. And I have documented evidence of my ancestors uh, fleeing religious persecution in the 1600s and coming to the U.S. Um, so this whole idea of, like, freedom to be your weird self and that being bound up with your identity as an American is very personal to me. And then, I mean, my background is so mixed. So all of my ancestors were weird and different and came to America for the chance to be weird and different. Um But my own experience of being an American was sort of just like non-existent. It was just, yeah, I was born here, so I guess I'm an American. It is what it is. And it's taken a lot of growing up and reading about history and paying attention to world events for me to have more of an appreciation of what it even means, Um, not just to be an American, but to be a citizen. Of this country, of my community, of the world. And then also um, pointing back to the thing you said about servant leadership. Like, you know, in a weird way, um, my servant leadership began at 18 when I found out that I was pregnant because 18 year olds are pretty much living for themselves. And then the minute I learned that I was pregnant, suddenly my entire world changed. The way that I ate, the way that I thought, the way that I planned completely changed. And I've never been an adult and not had someone else to take care of. There's never been a year of my adult life that I got to choose, you know, when I slept in. So, um, at a very basic level, like my whole life became about service. And that was a very good thing. I don't think that I would like the path that I was on. Um, Previously, I think that having that reframe and my life becoming all about service was very, very important. And then it led me to choose service roles over and over and over. You know, so sort of like with your experience where you found that through joining groups, joining the military, um, joining these different communities and coaching, that when you're coaching, when you're helping someone else better themselves, you feel most like yourself. I had that same experience too. So when I'm serving others, whether it's through running a restaurant and serving them food or whether it's health coaching, coaching and helping them improve their health and wellness or now through working in policy and doing consulting, like, and this podcast, right? Being able to elevate stories and share these stories of health and public health and wellness, it's all about how can I benefit my community and then the world. So I think that this like, piece of um, you know, national identity, personal identity. It is. It's unique and it's messy and it's all connected. But um, I think that it kind of is important that every person ask themselves what it means to them. Because I think for a while, I just took for granted that it meant nothing to me. And I think that that, that wasn't fair. Like it should mean something. It, it could mean whatever you want it to mean, right? But I think it's important to think about what it means to you. Because What being an American means to me is going to be very different than what it means to someone who, you know, came here this year fleeing persecution or, you know, has lived here for 200 years or whatever it is. Um, And it's going to mean something different to you and something different to a veteran who has put their life literally on the line for the concept of being an American. So I just think that whether or not um, being an American is a singular thing, and I don't think that it is or possibly could be. I do think it's important that people who are Americans um uh, ask themselves what it means to them and what they want it to mean, you know like what they want to model as being an American in this world
1: yeah I think um I think there's a real uh, endemic going on in in the world right now and that people are simply existing um They're going through life they're checking the boxes that they should be checking you know they go to college they get a job where they don't go to college uh once again another conversation um the value of college but
0: on uh, on hour seven hour
1: yeah um but like my personal ethos that i keep trying to like reaffirm to myself is that i want to die living right i don't want to die existing i don't want to die checking boxes. I want to die in a way that is honorable and, and not like in a blaze of glory, right? But like, I want to be able to look back at my years of life, when I'm 120 or how old I get to be. Hopefully, it's 120. Um, Probably not, probably not. I've my body's been a roller coaster, but um, uh, and know that I lived it's a life well lived. Right. And I'm not going to, I don't believe I'm going to go down in the annals of history as somebody who has saved the country or whatever, whatever is, you know, whatever radical statement people want to make, but I do want to leave an impact. Right. And that's really important to me. I've got two young boys, um, who I love more than anything in this world. Um, And I want them to have a childhood and a life, and adventures and an existence that far exceeds anything I could have ever imagined for myself. Um, Every time I talk about them, I get a little choked up. So, uh, and that that vision for them, Um, you know, so that's to me that would be dying, dying living, is that I have given them everything so like my last measure um and i want to do that for other people that's that is my goal in life is to empower people to die living
0: i love that and obviously i can relate on the parenthood piece Mm -hmm. and just wanting to really give it all to the kids um the future you know of this world and an attempt to make it better one cute little human animal at a time. Mm -hmm. So I have two questions that I really want to make sure that I ask, um, before we wrap up. So I'm going to dive to them right now. Um, when I was in graduate school, I did a project on veterans health and in doing my background research, the project was a policy development for using food as medicine for veterans health so the idea was to fund a pilot program through the va where veterans with chronic illness would receive um, medically tailored meals for their specific chronic illness or two or three Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact not by my doing but coincidentally there is now at least one pilot program happening with this and i believe it is through the va so that's very exciting but I say all this to say that during my background research period, I learned that in the U.S., veterans have a higher rate of chronic illness, noticeably higher, than the general population, even when you control for things that would obviously raise chronic illness rates like smoking, alcohol consumption, and even socioeconomic status. So even controlling for those factors that play a huge outstanding role in chronic disease risk, veterans still have a higher rate of chronic illness. So I would love to hear your thoughts on why that might be. And then also the question really is, if you had a magic wand that you could wave around improving something in veterans' health care, how we take care as a society of our veterans, what would you use that magic wand to do?
1: Um, I think the reason behind um, the higher occurrence of chronic illness within the veteran community uh, does lead back to those four pillars and the lack of focus or understanding or control of those four pillars. Um, You know, the the metabolic process of what going to war or even being a non-non-combatant veteran um, and that process of you know higher rates of cortisol lower rates of testosterone in the men lower um it, it it all leads into their ability to cope with with The trials and tribulations of life because once again you only have so much capacity right and if you're constantly worried about what your mental health is doing or how you're going to feed your family or all of those things like all the other stuff goes to the wayside right like you're not going to focus on intentional movement you're not going to you know i'll sleep when i'm dead like that whole philosophy um you're, you're not going to have the capacity to address those needs, which we all know from Maslow is they're all very important things. Right. Um, but I, I would say they're the most important things. Um, and I think once again, getting back to that servant leadership, um, I think through the servant leadership of being in veteran and LEO and first responder communities is that my job is to take care of others and not myself. Um, and I think people have a really hard time recalibrating that post-service to then try to focus on their wellness, right? Their own personal wellness and repairing some of those cracked edges and teasing out some of that scar tissue, um, to get that, you know, that pliability back. Um, we don't have a say in our experiences. We don't. Um, as much as we might try to control that stuff, um, every experience has, it affects us in some way, shape, or form. And I think that, once again, veterans are kind of told, like, this is your existence now. This is, this is the life that you're going to live. Um, And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair to to prescribe what someone's existence is gonna be. So, um, if I had a magic wand, um, it would start with proper education upon separation of the military. You know, the, the separation process from the military is not great um you know it's a 3 day course of basically getting your personal affairs in order and and trying to figure out what
0: 3 days yeah it's
1: 3 days yeah it's called tap Ooh. it's called tap class or class course tap class tap class um and that's at least that's what it was called when i when i separated in 2008 um and like i went to the class and i was like this isn't like nope nope, this isn't it this isn't it guys um and you know, I think it's called like transition assistance program or something like that. Um, and it's basically like, Hey, make sure that you've like how to write a resume and like, how do you leverage your military experience for the job market or, Hey, you're going to go to school. And, but it doesn't talk about, um, it doesn't talk about how to take care of yourself. Um, and I think you know, it needs to be a little bit more robust and it needs to start before you join the military, right? Um,
0: Prevention is the best cure.
1: Prevention is the only cure, right? Yeah. Like I was saying before about, like, medications, um, in the past 12 years since I've pulled myself out of that, medication hole that I was in, I've been back on an antidepressant once and it was for three months. And it was because I was experiencing some pretty rough hardship and it was a triage. It wasn't a solution. Right. And I think when it comes to mental health, I think people lean into medication as a solution and not as a opening up of availability of individual resources. Um, you know, it's like physical therapy right? Physical therapy isn't a permanent solution for an injury. Physical therapy is a, uh, it is a methodology in order to get over an injury, but then prevention and understanding and education on what that's supposed to solve is, is the solution, right? Um, So I think that the, the separation process is, garbage. I mean, that's really the only way I can describe it. Um, And I think if we start educating people in the military about, or people who are separating from the military about the benefits of health and wellness, um, I think we'll solve a lot of these, um, over time, solve a lot of these problems that uh, veterans are experiencing and going through. Granted, there's going to be people that, you know, um still go down that dark path, but um, if we have a network of other veterans who have the experience, we can support them a little bit better than we are right now.
0: Absolutely. All right, so speaking of that and my final question for you okay. you're you're doing so much amazing work in this world on a variety of levels in a variety of communities, but especially in the veteran community. So if people want to learn more about the work that you are doing, either because they themselves are a veteran or um, another, you know, service professional and are looking for that support or because they want to support your work, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. So um, for my, for collective health and wellness, which is my, um, personal business, I guess we'll call it. Um, the easiest way to do that is to reach out to me on Instagram. Um, and that's just amen.coin. Um We'll put a link okay. in the show notes. Great, Sounds great. Um, to reach out to uh, Redefining Warrior Culture, which is the, the overarching organization of Shoot, Move, and Communicate. Um, Shoot, Move, and Communicate is a retreat weekend. The organization is called Redefining Warrior Culture um and that instagram handle is uh, rdwc underscore actual on instagram um i just got the first pass of our website today um and we're just tweaking some things on there and adding some more information so that website should be out hopefully it's definitely gonna be before the retreat which is in december um but hopefully it's out in the next week or so we just gotta finish up some stuff
0: awesome well yeah. hopefully we can get that link into the show notes as well yeah. um well amen I just want to thank you so much for coming and speaking with me today um, as a friend obviously I've known you now for like 12 years um, I appreciate your friendship and I also just admire your service so thank you for your service both in the military but also in the communities that you inhabit and as a father because I know you know I'm raising girls and I'm a woman and I've It's a unique challenge, but I'm sure that raising boys in this world is its own unique challenge. So thank you for your service as a veteran, as a community leader, as a coach, and as a father. I truly and deeply appreciate it.
1: Thank
0: you. Thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast. For more information on me, Marion, please visit my website at marionflaxman.com. For more information on today's guest, Eamon Coyne, or any of his organizations, please find the links in the show notes. This episode was sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting and produced by Brain Trust Productions. Thank you once again for listening, and we'll see you next time.